Luke chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. And you're going to ask, didn't you already preach this sermon? No, but I did already preach this text, and we're going to come back to it. So Luke chapter 1, or excuse me, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not in temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? For he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Father, we, we come before You recognizing that, that Your Son has taught us how to pray. He's taught us what to ask for. And that He's promised us that You're a Father who hears us. That You want to give us good gifts. That You answer these prayer requests. That You promise to answer these requests. So Father, we pray that You would give us hearts that are prepared to ask what it is that Jesus has told us to ask. That we'd understand the weightiness of these requests, the danger in praying them, and the hopefulness in the answer. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we often use some variation of the expression, be careful what you ask for, right? Be careful what you ask for because you might get it. Or be careful what you pray for, was just said to me actually up here before, because you might get it. I've often heard people say, whatever you do, don't pray for patience. You guys ever heard of that? Don't pray for patience because God will give you life circumstances that will teach you patience. And we know the truth is that we should value godliness. And we know the truth is that we should value the gift of patience over good life circumstances. Yet we still understand the sentiment in that statement, don't we? None of us really wants the pain that's involved in learning patience, do we? Amen. Yeah. Somebody admits it other than me. We're so aware of not always wanting what we asked for that, that there are even songs about that. You guys know that, I, you know, I don't know if you remember this song back in the 90s, a guy named, or it may have been late 80s, early 90s, Garth Brooks. He wrote a song, and in this song he talks about how he he was um, in high school praying for this particular girl. I want God to give me this girl. I want God to give me this girl. Lord, give me this girl. This is the one for me. And what happened is, is he was asking God for that girl. He comes back years later with his now wife, and he sees her, and he so kindly says, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? <laughs> Not to her, hopefully. 
But we, we know that it's true that we don't always really want God to answer what we pray for. The fact is that if we believe Jesus is truthful in what he said and what I went over last week, which is that God will hear and answer our prayers. He will hear and answer these requests. If we believe that God is truthful in that, then we ought to be sober about what it is that Jesus is teaching us to request. Because God promises to answer these requests. And the question is, do we really want him to answer these requests? On Wednesday, I was hanging out with John Bryant, who, who's a guy from our church. He was up here playing rhythm. He's right there. So John and I were hanging out. He's all, one of the other tall guys around here. And, and we were hanging out, and we were doing a study together. And, and as we were studying the implications of the Lord's Prayer, John looks over at me and he says, that's really dangerous. It's a dangerous prayer. And, and I was actually struck by his comment, and I thought, you know what, you're exactly right. This is a really dangerous prayer. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more I'm sobered by the danger of this prayer. The more I thought about it and meditated on the prayer request Jesus is telling us to make, the more my mouth was stopped. And the more I had to consider if I really wanted what Jesus said I should want from my Father. I mean, I was actually stopped in my speech and thought to myself the next time I was about to pray, because I use the Lord's Prayer as the outline that I pray through every day, and as I was about to do it, I stopped. Do I really want this? Do I understand what it is I'm asking for? This is dangerous stuff. Because if I keep asking for this, Jesus tells me the Father's going to keep hearing me and answering it. So I concluded I needed to come back and challenge you. Do you really want to pray this prayer? And I don't mean repeat these things over and over again. I mean use this model of prayer that Jesus gives and go through really the five requests that he provides. Do you really want to do that? Are these really the requests you want the Father to answer in your life? Do you understand the danger of it? Have you counted the cost of this prayer and you consider the answers from God to be worth what it will cost you? See, Jesus said to count the cost before following him. We're going to get to that passage in a few chapters, which might take another year, but we're going to get there. He told us to count the cost before following him. And I'm saying you should count the cost before praying in the way he said to pray. So let's look at the prayer again. And as we do, I want you to see really what are the five most dangerous prayer requests you'll ever bring before God. And I want you to see why these five extremely dangerous prayer requests are worth asking for. So let's look there at verse 2. The disciples have asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And I went through this last week, and I'm not going to spend all my time going through this text this week. But I want you to see what happens. And Jesus said to them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, address him as Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not in temptation. So five requests. The first one, after we address him with the great privilege that we have because of Christ to address him as Father, the first one, hallowed be thy name or your name. This is a reputation for the holiness of God's name. God, or This is a, excuse me, a request for the holiness of God's name, for his reputation to be exalted. To say, holy be your name, means to say, I want your reputation, who you are, to be exalted. I want you to be exalted in my life. 
among my friends, among my family, in my children's lives. I want you to be exalted in my community, in my church, in my city. I want your name to be lifted up all around the world. Do you understand, though, that for his name to be lifted up, your name must be brought lower? What does John the Baptist say when Jesus comes on the scene? He must become greater, and I must become less. This may mean the loss of your reputation. It might mean the loss of your relationship with others. It might mean the loss of your academic standing or how people take you, whether or not people take you seriously. It might mean the loss of your success as you make ethical decisions that cost you because you care about his name. It might mean the cursing of your own name. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 22. Luke chapter 6, as Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Plain, some Beatitudes. In verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. How many of you think that's a blessed state? That's a state I'm going to rejoice in. That's a blessed state when people hate me and exclude me and revile me and spurn my name as evil on account of Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament were excluded and hated and reviled and their names were spurned as evil because they stood up for the Son of Man. They stood up for the truth. They wanted God's name to be set apart as holy, which meant the demeaning of their own name. You know the opposite of this is? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil. Verse 26, But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, cursed are you when people love you and when they include you and when they rejoice in you and when they hold up your name as good on account of your own self-promotion. Weep in that day, for behold, your punishment is great in hell. See, has this happened to you? Has your name been reviled? Have you falsely had all kinds of evil spoken against you on account of the Son of Man? If it hasn't happened to you, something's amiss. In some way, you're not speaking up for Jesus when you need to. If it hasn't cost you ethically at work, potentially, because you made a decision that cost you, if it hasn't cost you academic reputation because people think you're a joke, how could you believe anything like that stuff? If it hasn't cost you with friends or family, or people you've shared the gospel with who are neighbors or coworkers, something's amiss. Do you know that your name can even be reviled among professing Christians? I, I um, in this last year, in 2012, had some friends who I'm very close with, and I'm, I won't name them because some of you will know them because they're big on the scene and evangelicalism, quite well known, and, and um, one of them refused to take a stand for the Trinity at a very important point in which he should have taken a stand for the Trinity. And he and I talked about his refusal, and I told him I refused to follow him in that. And um, I paid 
personally for that because he told me as well as the group of guys that we all hung out with whom he led, he told that whole group of guys that just so they know, you're not to contact Chad Vegas anymore. If you see him at a conference, you don't greet him, you don't eat with him, he's dead to you. That's from a professing Christian, a leader in evangelicalism today. Your name can be reviled as evil when you take a stand for what's right. Shoot, I I mean, I was even called the emperor of darkness by a pastor this week. (laughs) I was, because of my doctrine. I watched or listened to a pastor revile another pastor friend this week from the pulpit, an entire sermon basically given just to revile another friend because of doctrinal disagreement. It may mean persecution from others. May mean persecution from others. Look at Acts. Keep your hand there and look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And look at verse 40. The leaders of that day called in the apostles because they were out preaching the gospel in Acts 5 verse 40. And when they had called, the, called in the apostles, it's Peter and James and John, those, those guys, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. In other words, don't talk about the name of Jesus. Then they, what did the apostles do? They left the presence of the council. Why? Rejoicing that they were worthy, counted worthy, to suffer dishonor for the name. In other words, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to have their names dishonored for the sake of his name. His reputation is what mattered in their lives, not their own. And every day in the temple, from house to house, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It may mean you lose everything that you count dear, praying this prayer. It might mean that you lose everything you count dear to yourself, even your own life. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. <clears throat> He's, wait, we know this chapter of Hebrews 11 because it's known as the sort of faith hall of fame, Right? As we hear about all these men who had faith in the Lord and followed him, and in verse 32, the author begins to sum this up a bit, and he says, what more shall I say? Verse 32 of chapter 11, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith... Now listen to the great things that happened in their lives, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That's all great stuff. Great. Lord, I'll pray your name be exalted, your reputation be held up in all the earth, and you give me those outcomes. But that's not the only set of outcomes that are listed here. Keep going. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Now catch this, and I'm going to insert this, men or women of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, the desire to see God's name 
and God's reputation spread may mean that you become far more insignificant than you ever hoped. It may mean that your name disappears from the scene of history when you close your eyes in death. Are you ready to ask for that? So what's the hope in that? The hope is that Jesus is your reputation. You take care of his reputation and you let him take care of yours. That he is your justification and your hope. He is your reputation. And because of him, the Father will say of you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will receive the joy and privilege of being worthy to suffer for the name. And you will be among those of whom God has said, these are men or women of whom the world is not worthy. Second petition, Luke chapter 11 Still in verse 2, right after Father, hallowed be your name, the next phrase is your kingdom come. And you'll notice that, that here in this particular time when Jesus teaches them to pray, he doesn't include your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, although that is included to some degree in your kingdom coming. Because when God's kingdom comes, his rule follows, right? His rule comes with his kingdom. Just like when God's will is done, that's because his rule is there, so his will is accomplished. In other words, the idea here is that you're praying, you've prayed for God's reputation, which means that his name will be made great and your name may get reviled. You're praying for God's kingdom or his rule, which means that God's will will prevail and your will will be put aside. You understand what it is that you're asking for. If the kingdom of God comes, then the kingdom of self is conquered. I mean, are you ready for that? Look at 2 Corinthians. Hold your hand there and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I want you to hear this because we often think of the kingdom of Satan being conquered, and that is true. But what Satan most tempts us to do is to turn in on ourselves. So it's not only the kingdom of Satan that is conquered, but the kingdom of self. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, that being Jesus, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live, that's those who believe, who are given new life, engrafted into and united to Christ, those who live might no longer what? Live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's the question. Are you ready to really pray that prayer? Your kingdom come. In other words, strip away my personal kingdom of self and deliver me into the kingdom of your beloved son. Not my will, but thy will be done. So what does your personal kingdom of self look like? What does it look like? It's generally what your identity is caught up in. It looks like your identity being caught, so, caught up so much in business or whatever you do for a career. So much so that if your business or your career in some way fails, your money's lost, then you're personally devastated. Why would God embarrass me with unemployment? I've always been successful. I've always been faithful. I'm not sure what I would even do with myself if I didn't keep doing this. I have a hard time, me personally, I have a hard time on vacation because I'm at loss for who I am when the busyness stops and I'm left with myself. That's pretty sobering about where I find my identity, isn't it? I don't know who I would be if that was all taken from me. 
So I have to constantly pray that God would crush that in me, that I would look to Christ as my identity. Or it might look like your identity being caught up in being a mom. Or maybe you're not caught up with your business, you're just caught up with being a dad. What will I do when my kids are gone? I know I like the, every, the idea of everything slowing down and becoming quiet for a while, but what about when the kids are all gone and everything is quiet and slowed down for good? What about when my life is no longer about being a mom or a dad? What happens when everything I've invested my emotional energy and time into is gone? Who am I when all these kids are gone? Looks like your identity being caught up in being young. What do I do with myself when I look in the mirror and I see my hair thinning and my skin wrinkling and I feel my joints aching and I find that I can now injure myself while I'm asleep? How does that happen? (laughs) That didn't used to happen. Even worse, what can I even accomplish now? See, I'm not young anymore and the time in my life in which I dreamed of what I could accomplish has largely passed. And I made my choices. And what if I realize I wish I had made different choices? What if I'm disappointed with who I've become? What if God comes in and says, I'm going to graciously rescue you from those identity issues, if you ask me. Ask for my kingdom to come, and I will save you from the kingdom of self. You are so concerned with who you are, Your identity is caught up in what you do, and I'm going to graciously strip those things from you and leave you naked, and I'm going to leave you with no more fig leaves to hide behind. I'm going to graciously do all this so that you'll find your identity, so you find who you are in Jesus. You ready for that? See, the hard part is that's terribly painful to go through. The good news is that you're being rescued into his kingdom And as you are, you will increasingly find joy in being delivered from you. And as we pray this, we're ultimately asking Jesus to return, right? And consummate what he started. Do you long for Jesus to return? You see, the younger you are, the more likely you are to not long for this, right? And if you aren't a believer, you rightly have fear at the thought of Jesus returning. But the older I get, and the more I understand that Jesus is my hope, the more I hope for that day. Further, as we're asking the question for God's reputation and God's rule to spread, let me ask this question. Are you ready for him to use you or your kids to do it? Are you ready to pray something like, Lord, if you want to send me to an unreached people group in a hostile Muslim nation, then I'm ready to go. But, but I just got married, and we just bought this cute little house, and I have a dream of having some cute little kids and raising them in the same American dream that I'm living in and that I've always wanted to live in and hope to continue to live in. It's even harder for your kids, right? How many of you are ready to stand up today and say, Lord, if you, if you want to take my children to a Muslim nation, then I dedicate them to that end, even if it means... I suffer the loss of my children and my grandchildren. I ask you to do whatever is necessary for your reputation and your kingdom to spread. You ready to ask that, parents? Whatever you want to do, Lord. But I want the American dream for me and for my kids. See, I don't want to let go of them. I want to live in the same city as them. And I want to raise their, I want to raise their kids around me. And I want, to experience the, I want them to experience the success that I've had in the American dream. 
And see, here's the kicker, the American dream, right? As long as Satan can prevent you from waking up from that idolatrous and happy dream, his work is done. Are you really ready to pray, hallowed be your name? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Father, your will be done in my marriage, with my children, with my reputation, with my career, with my finances. Make your name known, whatever the cost to me personally. Are you ready for the answers to a prayer this dangerous? Because Jesus promises that when you ask this, the Father will answer it. See, the dangerous part of this prayer is that God promises to answer this prayer. And it may be exceedingly painful for you when he does. It was exceedingly painful for Jesus when he answered that prayer in Jesus' life, wasn't it? Father, not my will, but thine be done. This prayer means death to self and the kingdom of self. And the good news is that God promises to answer this prayer and you will receive him as your reward. And you will be freed from yourself and you'll know joy in the Lord forevermore. Third request, third prayer request. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. Give us each day our daily bread. This is a prayer for physical provision. I want God to provide for me what I need. Not I want God to provide for me all the things I want. Is there anything wrong with asking for you want, what you want? No. Jesus just doesn't promise that God will answer all your desires unless they're exactly in alignment with God's will. But my guess is, if your desires are anything like mine, they're not all exactly in alignment with what God has chosen for my life. But he promises to give you all that you need. See, there was a popular book. Have you guys heard of this book, The Prayer of Jabez? Super popular. Went everywhere. Everybody loved it. It was a little prayer taken out of a, um, a genealogy, which is the sign that that's, that's already a bad start. When you take something out of a genealogy that's descriptive of something that happened in someone else's life in the process of a genealogy, and then you say, now we're going to make that descriptive thing about what happened to this guy in this genealogy prescriptive for the rest of us. Let's pray what he prayed, and then that'll happen to us too. You're already in dangerous ground as far as how you're approaching the Bible. But it was a wildly popular book because you could pray, God, expand my kingdom which is a wild prayer, isn't it? Expand my kingdom. And you're told that God will. I thought of a much less popular book title or a book that I thought I wanted to put out at the time, actually, because I'm a smart aleck that way. And uh, I thought about one called The Prayer of Agar. Right? Prayer, Jabez is a weird name, too. So The Prayer of Agar. I want you guys to look at, at, at that prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. I figured this book wouldn't sell many copies But Proverbs 30, verse 7, as Agar prays, two things I ask of you. You ready for what Agar's prayers are? Two things I ask for you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Here's the first thing. I don't want to be false or lying. I want to be a truthful person. Second one, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither of those things, poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Give me this day my daily bread. Lest I be full. See, if I get full with riches, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient now. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, I don't want to be so poor that I do something desperate and wrong. 
but I don't want to be so rich that I forget you. So don't give me either of those things. Just provide what I need. How many are willing to pray that prayer? See, that's the prayer, give me this day my daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. That's the prayer. Give us what we need. Don't give us wealth. Don't give us poverty. Just give us what we need. You guys ready to ask for that? It's dangerous because we're asking God to provide our needs, and God gets to decide what we need and not us. That's the danger, right? Think of what it means. This means we relinquish our demand for a certain level of health or demand for a certain length of days. In other words, life, number of days. Psalm 139 already says that God has determined the number of our days. And that we trust that God determines those numbers and the numbers of the days of our loved ones and even the numbers of the days of our children. And that his determination is good even when we don't like it. You ready to pray for that? This means we relinquish our self-sovereignty and trust the Lord for everything. And we may not always like the ways in which the Lord chooses to provide. Or we might not always like what the Lord chooses to provide. But we trust him to do it. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Keep your hand there in Luke 11. And look at Matthew chapter 6. In the same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, after prayer, Jesus goes on in verse 25, and he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what, will you, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So don't worry about whether or not that check is coming this Wednesday on the 31st. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. In other words, they're not farmers, and they don't store up what they gather. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Don't open up your retirement statement every month and be anxious over whether enough will be stored up in that barn. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Interestingly, this word isn't actually hour. It's the word cubit, which is 18 inches, which is the equivalent of one step. You can't even take one step forward on your own can't even add that to your life. The number of the steps that you take in your life are determined by God. You can't even add one. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Again, he says that, right? Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that being unbelievers, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, the danger in this prayer is not that God refuses to bless you. He doesn't. Oftentimes, he'll bless you beyond what you would ever hope for or ask for. The danger in this prayer is that God refuses to allow you to be sovereign over your days or over your success or over your basic provision. God commands you to press into his kingdom and his righteousness and trust him for everything else. And the good news is that God will provide you with what you need, and even more, he will provide you with all things in Christ. In Christ. But your hope is future 
and not necessarily now. But that great future hope is greater than anything you could possibly touch now. Everything now that's good is just a small taste or parable or picture of what's to come with him. Four, fourth request is this request for moral, moral pardon. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. This is a dangerous prayer because to really confess our sin, I want you to hear this, to really confess our sin and repent of our sin means that God will graciously help us to see the truth about us so that we can. Are you really interested in God showing you the truth about you? Do you really want to see it? Do you want to see who you really are? Are you ready to have the mirror of God's word held up to your face to expose who you really are and what you've really done? See, the prayer is dangerous because you're saying you're ready for all the fig leaves to be removed. You're ready to be laid naked and bare before God and others and confess your sins. In 1 John 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now the question is, what does that mean? If we confess, that word in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo meaning same, legeo legeo meaning to say, to say the same thing. If we say the same thing about our sins that God says about them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And why is he faithful and just? Because his son was crushed for our sins. And so his justice is vindicated in our forgiveness because he placed his justice for our sins upon his son. And he's faithful to do that if you confess them, if you say the same things about your sin that he says. But in order to do that, you have to have the mirror of God's word held up to your face, both from the pulpit and from your friends speaking the truth and love to one another to see who you really are. And you have to be willing to see who you really are. And it's painful to find out who you really are. It's painful. That is dangerous business to ask God to forgive us as we forgive others. Because for that request to be made, we have to confess who we really are. And you have to know that God's grace is good enough sufficient to cover all your sins and remove all your guilt if you're ever going to have the courage to say, here's who I really am. Here's what I've really done. See, Jesus came and went to the cross and took your shame. And he paid for all your guilt. And he took your debt upon himself. He took all of it. And if you don't understand the good news, you will never have the courage to truly pray this way. Never. Further, when you truly understand forgiveness then you become the kind of person who forgives others. See, that's dangerous, isn't it? Forgiveness is dangerous business because those who are forgiven become those who forgive. Fifth dangerous prayer request he gives here is the one for spiritual protection. Look at the end of verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. Let's be honest. This, This prayer is dangerous because we love our sin. We do. We love our sin. You might say, I hate some of my sin because I've seen how that destroys my life. You're right, but there's some other parts of your sin you love. You you want me to give you the test that you love your sin and and that you don't really want God to help you with day-to-day personal holiness? Want me to give you the test? Just keep your hand there and look at Ephesians chapter 5. You ready for it? Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're going to imitate God as those who are loved by him. And we're going to do that by walking in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, which follows on this passage just before where he says to forgive other people as God forgave you in Christ. You ready to love people in such a way that you love them at great cost to yourself? Yes, God, lead me not in temptation, but deliver me from evil. Help me, God, to be the kind of person who loves people when it only costs me. You ready for that? Who shows forgiveness to people who I don't want to forgive? Who every time I interact with this person, whether it's my family member or friend, it always costs me personally. Are you ready to ask God to teach you to love them? Even if it all it ever does is cost you? You ready to pray that kind of prayer? Lead me not in temptation? Don't, don't let me walk in the temptation of becoming self-righteous and selfish. Help me not to be that person. Help me not to be the person who becomes bitter and unforgiving. Are you guys ready to pray for that kind of spiritual protection? Well, let's go on. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that means the desire for something someone else has, it's not yours, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Sexual morality and impurity and desiring what other people have must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You ready to apply that to the movies you watch? The books you read? The commercials you take in? You want God to lead you, out of, in, in, lead you not in temptation to help you avoid that? Do you realize what adjustments that might make to your entertainment schedule? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Are you ready for God to govern your tongue that way? To govern your sense of humor and the way you speak to your friends and the amount of double entendre you use? Are you ready to have God govern you that way? Do you want God to answer your prayer and do whatever is necessary to help, you, help keep you from sin? I mean, do you really want to pray this? Do you want to learn wisdom so you can walk in it? Because wisdom and holiness comes through lots of pain and lots of trials and lots of suffering. Wisdom comes through trust in the Lord and obedience. Do you really want to radically obey God and trust God and walk through whatever God wants to take you through to make you more like his son so that you will flee from temptation to sin and walk in holiness? Do you know what it means to be holy? Do you understand the high call of godliness? What happens when you pray for this is that God answers it. And when God answers it graciously, he will often answer it by bringing the loving, fatherly discipline necessary to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness we lack. Hear that? Are you ready for that discipline? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, though Jesus did. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. See, this discipline is painful, but it's worth it because the fruit of righteousness is peaceful and it's good fruit, but it's painful for a time. Do you really want to ask for that for yourself? Lead us not in temptation. Or for your children, or your spouse, or your church, or your friends. God, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Protect us spiritually. Help us walk in wisdom. Help make us holy, whatever the cost. Whatever discipline you have to bring. I mean, have you ever even been in the midst of what seems like frowning providence? Like God is looking down on you in a way that it doesn't seem like he's smiling, but frowning upon you. You ever been in that? Have you ever felt the wilting touch of his loving discipline? It's painful. But you soon learn with William Cooper that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And that the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower from it. See, this is a simple way to pray that Jesus gives us. He gives us five simple petitions. You can put them on all five fingers and pray. You can pray for God's reputation, for God's rule, for physical provision, for moral pardon, and for spiritual protection. It's a very simple model on how to pray, but it's incredibly dangerous because it means the death to you. What if I fail to pray this way? Because I really don't, I don't want God's will but mine. What if I shudder to think that I might get what I ask for? What if I'm struggling with thinking that God's idea of what is good for me and brings him glory is not what I really want? What if I really don't like that God is sovereign and I'm not? What if I've always struggled to want my will and not his will to be done? See, here's the good news. Jesus prayed for God's will when he didn't want to in your place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death, he prayed what? Father, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus didn't desire what God was bringing in his life in that sense. He didn't want the pain of the Father's wrath turned upon him and the Father's face turned away from him so he experiences the suffering of separation from God, which is spiritual death. Jesus didn't want to experience eternal hell in an instant on the cross. But he knew that his father's will was greater than his own, and that his father's will is ultimately what he really desired. And so he said, Father, though, I don't want this. I want more than anything else your will, so your will and not my will be done. And he went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, including the penalty for our sin to not want to pray that same prayer. And he credited to us his righteousness, including the righteousness that he prayed that prayer in our place so it's credited to our account. And he gave us new life and adopted us as his children so that we can finally pray, gave us his spirit so that we can finally pray as he works in us, so that we can finally pray as he prayed. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would do your will among us, that we would be willing to be a people who pray for your reputation to be exalted, for your rule to be expanded, that we would take whatever you physically provide for us and we'd trust you for it. We'd be willing to see the truth about ourselves and confess it and receive your forgiveness and graciously forgive others. Father, that we would desire holiness 
regardless of the cost to us or the pain of the discipline that we would endure to receive it because of the peaceful fruit of righteousness that it yields. Father, we recognize that you are faithful to answer our prayers, that you promised to answer the prayers that Jesus gave us to ask. We thank you that he asked in our place, that he paid for our sin in our place, and that he's given us new life so that we may walk with him and follow him in that. Pray that you'd give us the ability to even ask these things and that you would work powerfully in us as you answer them, that your son would be exalted in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.